is created in God's image. That's a Christian teaching. That's very foundational, and that means every person has value. You don't have to work for your value. You don't have to take on any identity as being valuable. Every person is created in God's image, and that's amazing. Um, and then, you don't have to mention the word sin, but you can mention not every person, every, every human being is also not perfect. I think that's a good way to kind of explain the concept of sin, which is actually what it means. Sin means missing the mark. You're not perfect. Um, and Jesus, and, but Jesus is perfect. Like just something very, very simple like that. Well, I, I'm a gay person, I'll just read it to you. A gay person, when I say gay, men and women, okay? A gay person who still wants to attend church after the way the church has treated the gay community, I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do. They have more faith than a lot of you. A gay person who knows, you know what? I might not be accepted here, but I'm gonna try it anyway. Have you ever done that as a straight person? Do you, where do you go that you're not sure you're gonna be accepted and you go over and over and over and over? Do you find homosexuality to be a sin? Doesn't matter what I find. Okay, then I mean, what the do Bible, you believe the Bible says? Homosexual behavior is a sin, not homosexual feelings. Newsflash, folks, you are not special. There's 8 billion people on the planet. And we have a tendency to think we are special, even to God. I'm special to God. God is not a respecter of persons. And what that means fundamentally and essentially is that you, out of all those 8 billion people on, in, on, the, in the, on the planet, in the world... You're not any more special than any of the others. Not one of you. This is part of the issue. All right, so what is going on here with Christopher Yuan and Andy Stanley, Frank Turek, J.D. Greer, all these guys, these evangelical leaders, desperately trying to find a way to extend an olive branch to the homosexual community, the homosexual movement. Why? Why is this happening? Well, Look across America. Look across American society. What is going on in American society? But that sexual deviants, sexual perverts, and radical feminists are absolutely hard at work destroying the culture. Now, I personally believe that this is very likely the wrath of God being poured out on American society, and he is destroying this country from inside using homosexual deviance and radical feminists to do so, all right? But we have something far more concerning going on, taking place in our, in our communities of faith. This deviance, this radical feminism, this sexual deviance, and we're really talking more about the homosexual movement and what's going on there, is being imported into the churches by a variety of, of godless pastors with an exaggerated estimation of their own importance, not only that, men who see themselves as conservative Bible-believing pastors have unwittingly subscribed to certain tactics and strategies that are essentially resulting in permitting 
homosexuals, and in some cases, even pedophiles, into the churches. And in some cases, transgenders. It's off the charts ridiculous. Now, here's the thing. Is this a problem or is it a symptom of a problem? Is it a symptom of a much bigger problem? I'm going to submit to you that it is a symptom of a much bigger problem. I'll give you the problem at the conclusion of the podcast. But my name is Ed Dingus, and you're listening to the Reformed Granted Podcast, where I rant about theological, philosophical, and even political issues of the day, but I do so from a distinctly Reformed Christian point of view. Now, today I'm going to talk about the strategies that are being employed by many uh, leaders and churches to embrace homosexuality and to bring this behavior into the community of faith. Now, in terms of how we would initially respond to Yuan and Stanley and Turek, let me just give you a couple of pointers. First, you want to you want to examine how things are being framed. It's not about valuing human beings, right? That that, that really is a red herring. This is exactly how we do not frame these issues. It's not about whether or not people who are engaging in pernicious sexual deviance uh, are created in the image of God. That has nothing to do with it. Do the humans who are in hell right now, this very moment, have value? Were they created in the image of God? Yeah, but they're burning in hell because of their rebellion, right? Does that mean, if we warn them this is going to happen to them, does that mean we're not valuing them? Right? So the first problem is how this is framed. If you, if you don't talk about this a certain way, then you're not valuing people. Utterly ridiculous. Has nothing to do with that. Look at the Bible. Did the Pharisees that Jesus rebuked have that? He called them serpers, serpents, vipers, brood of vipers. Did they have value? Did the ravenous wolves those false teacher types that Paul talked about in Acts 20. Did they have value? What about Sodom and Gomorrah? Did they have value? So that's the first answer to Chris uh, Yuan. It, to, to, to frame it up as being valuable or not valuable is a red herring. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about people being created in the image of God. Now, to Andy Stanley, the homosexual wants acceptance. Right. He's amazed that they're still going to want to come to church and this kind of thing. They want acceptance. They want affirmation where they are. They want to be considered righteous. They don't want to be made to feel like or reminded of the guilt that they have within because they know the, the, the behaviors they're engaging in are pernicious. They know this. They, they know it. They go to church out of the misconception that doing so somehow makes them not vile sinners engaging in sinful deeds. They, it's a mechanism that they use to try to get around the guilt that they feel within because they know they're violating God's order, right? To them, if the church affirms them, then maybe that means God affirms them and they feel better about themselves, right? That's, that's the reason they come to church. It's the reason all false converts come to church, self-righteousness, right? And to Frank Turek, a real simple answer. Look, homosexual lust is just as forbidden as homosexual sex, period. Homosexual desires are just as sinful as homosexual sex. To find same-sex relationships attractive is in and of itself sinful. It's unnatural, it's a violation of God's order, and it's a violation of God's law.
All right, let's begin with some observations. Over the last few decades, we have moved from abhorring, rejecting, and shaming homosexuality to just to not just tolerating it, not just affirming it, but celebrating it. What is worse is, is uh, that we insist on, on, the, on the, the practice of, of celebrating it as a moral requirement. In other words, it is immoral for us now to refuse to celebrate homosexuality, to support it in everything that it wants to do. If you're not celebrating homosexuality, you're a bigot, you're hateful, your rights should be taken away. And inside the church, it is almost as if if you are not taking a certain position on homosexuality that's incredibly soft, if not tolerant and accepting, then you are not valuing them as created in the image of God. This is satanic, demonic manipulation at its finest. And those people who are buying into it are blinded by Satan. And I'm, I'm convinced that it is quite likely a delusion sent by God to judge them for their sinfulness, for their idolatry, for their rebellion, for their rejection of, of him and his, his righteous word. The homosexual movement, along with all its counterparts, bears all the marks of a religious movement, if you look at it. It is a crazed celebration of homosexuality taking place in our society, our culture, that is absolutely impossible to miss. It is everywhere. If you were to, if you were to just go back 20 years, people would never believe that it would reach this point ever, let alone in just 20 years. Homosexual marriage is now considered to be on the same level as heterosexual marriage. Gender dysphoria, which is a mental illness, a mental disorder, has exploded within this culture, mostly because Americans for a very long time now have embraced the herd mentality and a desire to be viewed as cool. And what is cooler than being part of the cool crowd? And what is the cool crowd? The cool crowd is the crowd that embraces anything that's new and rejects everything that is old and traditional. That's cool. To hang on to the old. If it's old, it's bad. If it's new, then it's good. It's utterly irrational at its core. Children are being sliced up by scientists whose beliefs are anything but based on science. Doctors are making hundreds of millions of dollars to do irreversible harm to our children. It's there's a big business out there in sexual deviance and perversion. And it's being exploited more and more and more every day. Their beliefs are grounded in pagan godless philosophies that oppose the God of Christianity at every turn, top to bottom. In fact, recently a 15-year-old girl uh, admitted that she had her well, she was 16. She, she admitted that she had her breasts removed. And one year later, came to realize that she had made a tragic mistake, a mistake that's irreversible. And in fact, experts say that when kids go through anything like this, the small percentage of them that actually do go through this kind of confusion, well over 80% of them work through it as they mature This is tragic. Not only this, 
People who have these surgeries seem to be blissfully unaware that those of the opposite sex who have natural, ordered sexual desires have no interest in being in a relationship with them. But they don't seem to consider that as they go through these transitions, carving up their bodies, thinking that if they remove their penis, it will make them a woman. It will not. All too often on the other side of that surgery, they find out that they were mistaken. Why nobody talks about this is is bewildering. It's puzzling. Why Why does society not address these facts? Well, there's a lot of money in it, for one thing. And let's face it. The, the sexual urge and the pleasure humans derive from the sex act itself, there's probably not another pleasure on earth, physically speaking, that can even come close to matching that pleasure. Whether it's sinful or not sinful, human beings are going to engage in sex. There is no other urge that even comes close to being that powerful. So that those are those are two big reasons why society isn't doing anything about this. Now, you know, the really interesting question is what's the church going to do? What are we going to do? How are we going to think about it? How are we going to talk about it? Uh, We are here in this society. God placed us here deliberately at this time, in this moment, as a true believer, as someone called by God to be the light of the world. What are we going to do about it? What should we think about it? We know Leviticus 22, 18 says that it is an abomination. We know that Leviticus 20, 13 actually calls for the death penalty penalty for anybody engaging in it. We know that Romans 1 says not only are those who engage in this worthy of death, but those who applaud them, those who prop it up, those who support them are worthy of death. We know that 1 Corinthians 9 says homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. We know what Jude says about Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them how they indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, and that those people are undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. We know this. The Bible's position on homosexuality is unambiguous. It is very, very clear. In the Sinaitic Covenant, Under the judicial law, it was a capital offense, and the punishment was death. In the New Testament, Paul describes homosexual activity, including desires, affections, what we might call attractions, as unnatural, degrading, and shameful. He goes out of his way to ensure that those who were once homosexuals as unbelievers are described no longer as as homosexuals. Such were some of you. I'm no longer a murderer. I'm no longer a liar. I'm no longer an adulterer, a homosexual. I am washed in the blood of the Lamb. All right? The statistics of promiscuity within the homosexual community up until recent time were easy to access. Now, you can't find them. 
a report published back in just 2011, 12 years ago, reported that 83% of homosexual men and men admitted to having over 50 sexual partners. 50, over 50. Today, the new data says that the typical gay man only has 11 partners over the course of his lifetime. In the same ballpark as heterosexuals. Folks, this is nothing but propaganda. It's a lie. And anyone who, who knows anything about sex and the homosexual community and the unregenerate heart knows that this is a lie. All right. So there are several different uh, categories uh, that churches fall into today when it comes to homosexuality. And the point here is I want you to see the subtleness, the shades, if you will, uh, and attempts to bring homosexuality in, into the church. There are churches who prop up and support unrestrained homosexuality. They don't care if you're married. They don't care how many partners you have. They don't care. They don't ask. They don't care. You can be in the church no matter what. In fact, in the Charlotte, North Carolina area, there are 41 churches listed as gay-affirming churches. Talk about an oxymoron, right? There's Justin Lee's Gay Christian Network. There's Q Christian uh, the Q Christian Organization and website, a Christian fellowship cultivating radical belonging for LGBTQ plus Christians and allies. Again, oxymoron. Then there's the gay apostolic Pentecostal denomination that adheres to one as Pentecostal beliefs while affirming LGBTQ people. So homosexuals speaking in tongues. To my Pentecostal friends, I might... Uh, share with you that the tongues that they speak in sounds exactly like the stuff you do. Exactly. I know you're going to say it's counterfeit, and I'm going to laugh. This category is where homosexuals hope to take all of Christianity just as they have taken all of society. Full celebration and affirmation. Right, Homosexual marriage uh, is the next category. There are churches, so let's go to the, the next shade. What is the next shade of churches? The next shade of churches are churches who are okay with homosexuality, but they at least insist that you, you must be married in order to engage in uh, sexual relations. So if you're homosexual, you can have homosexual sex if you marry the person that you're having sex with. So homosexual marriage is the next shade. It's accepted. It's affirmed. It's celebrated. Okay. They look slightly, slightly more conservative than the other, the unrestrained group, but they're not. And then there's the third group, homosexual attraction. These are the, the churches that uh, will tell you that same-sex attraction uh, is not ipso facto sinful. It's not, it's morally neutral, so to speak. Uh, same-sex attraction uh, is homosexuality in the churches, but it restricts all sexual expressions and activities. You can't act on your desires. As long as you don't act on your desires, you're not sinning, right? You have to... to Manage them and restrain them. It's okay to to want to have these things, but you've got to control them. You you can't. And it's even okay to identify as a homosexual in these these churches. These churches, you're going to hear them oftentimes belittling marriage. They'll criticize marriage. They'll elevate singleness, and you think that they're you know they're they're trying to they're trying to be um, 
supportive of people who are single, who are not married. That's not what they're doing, folks. You're being duped. You're being naive. They're not. They don't care about true singleness from the biblical standpoint, which is, which is the Bible doesn't extol singleness for the sake of singleness. The Bible, when it, when it praises the decision on the part of a person to be single, it isn't praise for, for the decision to be single for the sake of being single. It's single for the sake of serving, radically serving the church 100%. You're not going to get married. You're not going to have a family. You're not going to have kids. You're going to have basically your job. And then everything else you do outside of that is to serve the body of Christ. You've got the gift. You don't have the same sexual drive that other people might have. You don't struggle with these things. You don't burn with lust like most of us would do or do, right? Um, and so you're going to make the decision to be single in order to serve the body of Christ, right? The virtue is the reason for the decision to serve the body of Christ. It isn't uh, to be single just for the sake of being single. That's utterly ridiculous. Homosexuals latch on to this, right? Because homosexuals are not getting married. I mean, you, you, you thought that they really wanted this to, to, so they could get married. And the, the number, the percentage of homosexuals that are actually getting married is incredibly low. They don't want to get married. They want to stay single and they want to have sex with whoever they want to have sex with, right? So they're going to sneak in this, oh, singleness is good. Marriage is, is just, marriage is an idol. Family's an idol, right? This is utterly pernicious, guys. Utterly pernicious. No godly pastor worth his salt would not see through this. He would understand what's going on. He would never belittle the family. He would never call what we see as family, this high view of the family and having children. We He would never see that as idolatry or some sort of man-made institution. But that's what these guys do. And they have an agenda, right? Uh, they also think that the desire for homosexual sex is immoral, as I mentioned. Uh, you cannot act on these desires, but you can have the desires. Uh, they call the desires temptations. They're not, they're not temptations. They're sin. All right, and then the final group uh, on this, uh, this shade, if, if we'll call this next shade, homosexual attraction. Uh, they're really calling it, uh, yeah, attraction, temptation, uh, stopping short of uh, same-sex attraction. They're trying to move away. So here's what's happening. They, they, the experiment comes with full-on unrestrained homosexuality. The churches, most churches reject it outright. And then the next shade is, uh, well, you have to be married. You can be homosexual, but you have to be married. And still, most churches reject it. Well, they cut they go they go they go but they go away. They they strategize and they come back with uh same sex same sex attraction. Well, the percentage of churches who accept these things increases with every shade of homosexuality that they bring, right? If you remember the uh the movie Jurassic Park, the very first one, when uh, they had the animals, the dinosaurs, 
uh, in the, the cages. And they had this species of dinosaur that went around that fence line, testing it for weakness. The homosexual community is testing the Christian community for weaknesses. That's what this is about. This is the strategy that's employed. If this doesn't work, you'll get another shade that will will come. This one, unfortunately, is a little more effective than the other ones, the previous ones that I went over. This idea that um, we're going to focus on on confusion. We're going to use James 1, and we're going to argue that James is laying out some sort of a um, modality of temptation. Hey, here's the steps that you go through, and as long as you don't get to, you know, step one's okay, step two's okay, step three is when you cross the line. This is not what James is doing. James is dealing with a very basic idea, and that basic idea is don't blame God for your sinful temptations. They don't come from God. They come within your own nature. That's all James is doing. To read more into that text, to try to to take it in a wooden literal sense and say, well, you got this part, and then this part, and then this part, and then this part, and that's really what James is interested in doing, is utterly ridiculous. That is not what James is interested in doing. You don't see this anywhere in Scripture, and I'll show you why it's absolutely flawed top to bottom. Okay, but they they use James to try to create they to try to create confusion around the difference between being tempted and actually having the desire. There's a difference between uh, an affection, a feeling, a feeling versus actual desire. Right? You can feel attracted romantically to someone of the same sex as long as you don't desire it. Right? This is a distinction, folks. Without a difference, right? It's word games. It's semantics. It's deception, right? For decades now, evangelical leaders, seminaries, pastors have been promoting an antinomian attitude, right? This is part of the issue. This is another symptom of this much larger problem that we're going to talk about in a moment, briefly at the end. Right, uh, the idea that you can call Jesus Savior uh, without calling Him Lord, easy believism, the idea that sin is an imperfection, that's all it is. No, sin is lawlessness. That's what sin is, right? It is lawlessness. Now, you, you might read the lexicon and say sin is missing the mark, but the problem, the problem with describing sin as <clears throat> as missing the mark is is namely this it is the modern image the modern image that is conjured up in the mind when we say missing the mark it's not the ancient image it's the modern image we think of just being slightly off target that's all it is so that's an imperfection that's an, not a big deal right but if you read the text of scripture and you go back to the ancient world, missing the mark in this sense, morally, is catastrophic. They wouldn't see missing the mark as casually as we see or think of missing the mark. It's far more profound than that. 
So when Christopher Yuan uh, positions sin in this way, and most churches do, do the same thing. They position sin like this. And to be honest, most Christians think sin is really just, you know, an imperfection. It's a mistake. It was an accident. No, it's not. James, or John, John says sin is lawlessness. And this lawlessness, this antinomian lawlessness is something that has been in the churches now for, for some time. And it has created a a garden, if you will, the soil. It has created the conditions, the soil necessary to allow things like homosexuality, transgenderism, radical feminism to flourish inside the community of faith. And I blame the pastors. And of course, the false converts that hire the pastors to be their pastors, right? So what happens is these people come in they have this garden of antinomianism to plant their seeds in, these low standards of fake Christians and false con- converts, and they plant their seeds. I mean, look, for lowering the bar and soft- softening our stance on homosexuality, we're also lowering the bar for everyone else to live sinful but guilt-free. Look at, look at how the church has treated adultery and divorce. We don't, we don't discipline people for these things. We just don't. We, we tolerate it. We allow it. Right. Now, in this shade, you cannot identify as a homosexual. You cannot identify as a homosexual. But you can have homosexual feelings, attractions. You cannot have homosexual desires. They make a distinction between attractions and desires. That is a distinction without a difference. An attraction is never alone. It's always accompanied by thoughts, which are activities of the mind. You are engaging in thinking when you have attractions. You cannot engage in homosexual sex. Cannot engage in any intimacy with same-sex friends. Looks a lot more conservative than the previous shade. Because the previous shade even allows for cuddling and living together, but no sex. What is the difference between being a man who is sexually attracted to a man and a man who has, a, who has the desire to have sex with a man? There's no difference. What, what about, is there a difference between a man who has sexual feelings for a man and another man who, ha, who is sexually attracted to a man? Explain to me the difference. I'll give you a million dollars if you can explain to me the difference. There's no difference. They're setting it up, trying to set it up, so that there is a a difference and a distinction because they're using a confused reading of James 1 to try and muddy the waters. That's the strategy. The modern definition of homosexuality is simply someone who is sexually or romantically attracted to someone of the same sex, whether they have sex or not. So if your church allows members who are sexually attracted to men or have sexual sexual feelings for someone of the same sex, then your church is gay-affirming and welcoming members who are gay. Now, you can think all day long that these people are going to restrain from sex. They're not. They're going to have sex. And if they don't have sex, which... I'm extremely pessimistic about because we all understand the sinful condition of the human heart. 
If they don't have sex, they're going to watch porn and they're going to lust and they're going to please themselves sexually with thoughts that are absolutely forbidden. Heterosexuals can certainly relate to what I'm talking about. We all are tempted to think these thoughts, every one of us, except for those maybe who are gifted. All right. Look, the, the sexual urge is biological. It, it's either there at a normal level or you have the gift. Or maybe there's a physical condition where you don't have it. I don't know if we'll call it a gift. We'll say, you know, there's a biological. There's the gift and there's biological. The gift would be accompanied by the biological, but just because you have the biological lack of a sexual urge, that wouldn't necessarily mean that God has especially gifted you because you might not even be a Christian, right? So this is the issue. It's, it's biological. Now, that urge is there. You attach thoughts to the urge. You attach thoughts to the urge. Sex. Sex also releases dopamine, which is a chemical, a function in the brain that makes us feel good, right? There's a ton of things that release dopamine. Sex is one of them. It's why the, the joke on some of these sitcoms when you see somebody come into the lunchroom or the cafeteria or whatever and they're in a really good mood and, you know, they, well, they, you know, they had sex last night. So, so it, it's not just a, a pleasure in the moment, but it also increases these levels of happiness. We, we feel good. Here's the question in terms of, of happiness. Should lusting for someone of the same sex make a Christian feel good? And I mean carrying out that lust. A hero's brain releases dopamine when he saves a baby's life. Perhaps a serial killer's brain releases dopamine when he takes someone's life. The sexual urge itself, because it's biological, is morally good because it's given to us by God. What you decide to wrap that sexual urge in is where the morality comes in. Will you decide to think thoughts about someone of the same sex? Think thoughts about maybe a, a woman that's not your wife or a man that's not your husband? That's where the sin is. The temptation is not the biological urge. It's the thought that comes and you do nothing with it. You engage it, right? The minute the thought pops up, that's the point of temptation. That's the point where you have to say, I reject it. I will not allow my sexual urge to be wrapped in same-sex attraction because it is sinful. And my desire is to please God, not to please myself. Right? Imagine the woman who meets your personal criteria for beauty, sexuality, or the man. You see him or her. Objectively, he's incredibly handsome. She's incredibly beautiful. Physically, all of your preferences line up there. 
But then you meet this person. And you start to make observations about their behavior. Physically, objectively, beauty, handsome, whatever. But then the behaviors are not anything that you find attractive. In fact, you find the attitude, the behavior, some of the things that you're saying incredibly annoying and unattractive. How is it that you can then decide, I am not going to be sexually attracted to this person at all? It's just, boom, not happening. Because of the things you value. You value courtesy, politeness, you value humor, you value humility. And when you start seeing these things in someone that you don't value, your attraction changes. So your attraction is driven by your values. Think about that. Your attraction is driven by your values. If you're attracted to a man, there's something wrong with your values. You value the wrong things. Renew the mind by the word of God. Stop, stop as soon as the temptation comes. Stop it dead in its track, tracks. It is not something you value. It is something you loathe. Right. When you start looking at those things and valuing the things God values, I promise you, the things you find attractive and unattractive will line up with what God finds attractive and unattractive. They don't talk about that stuff, folks. Right? James said each one of you is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. What, what is James saying here? He's saying James does not, he's saying God does not tempt us to sin. Do not say when you're tempted, God's tempting me. Temptation comes from within. It comes from your own heart, your own nature. When the thought appears, it must be immediately, it must immediately be rejected and called out on the spot. When you entertain the thought as attractive, your values are warped, and you give birth to sin. Lust is not conceived when you reject the thought. Lust is conceived when you find the thought attractive in any way, shape, or form. And that in and of itself is sin. There's no next step that you have to go through in order to get to bringing forth sin. The minute you find an ungodly thought attractive and appealing, you've sinned. You cannot find the thought attractive and still be in a position where you haven't sinned. You understand that? You cannot find the thought or the idea as attractive or appealing without sinning at the same time. Man looks across the street at his neighbor's wife and finds the thought of having sex with her, seeing her naked, attractive. He has sinned immediately. Understand that. Finding sinful behavior attractive in your thoughts is sinful. I hope I hope this is resonating with, with, with some people. All right. 
Summary, open homosexuality was attempted and rejected by evangelical churches. Married homosexuality was attempted and rejected by most evangelical churches. Same-sex attraction and homosexual identity was attempted and accepted by some evangelical churches. Now, sexual attraction feelings, really, sexual feelings, desires are framed as temptations like any other sinful temptation. You can have them so long as you don't act on them and you don't call yourself homosexual, and it's okay. One of the largest SBC churches in Charlotte, North Carolina, recently has embraced this strategy. They had uh, recently had uh, Christopher Yuan over. Uh, he came in and trained everyone on this nonsense. That church is Hickory Grove Baptist Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Trained hundreds and probably over a thousand people on this very approach. Uh, I talked to the pastors, did my best to steer them in a different direction. And of course, you know, they know more than everybody else. And so they did what they did. God is the judge. Christopher Yuan is on record saying that Christians can be pedophiles so long as they do not act on their sexual attractions. Yeah, you can, you can actually have sexual feelings for little kids and still be a Christian. This is the guy that one of the largest SBC churches in, in North state of North Carolina brought in to talk, to train their people on how to think biblically about human sexuality. All right. Now, think about it this way, folks. Evangelical churches engage in the following behaviors. We refuse to train people on proper ecclesiology and biblical eldership. We won't train people on biblical or systematic theology. Most people don't want it, so we don't train them on it. We won't train our Sunday school teachers in any fashion remotely resembling serious training. Not even close. We just don't do it. Uh, we sing songs put out by some of the most pernicious heretical sources we can find, and we excuse it. We don't properly screen members before they come into the community, and we won't lift a finger to discipline members out of the community, not the way Scripture demands that we do it. But we will bring in a homosexual like Chris Yuan to train people on how to think biblically about human sexuality. All right? I name names for the following reasons. Paul said in Acts 20, 29, and 30, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Jude 4, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long before marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. How should we think about these things? And what should we do about them as the church? Well, here it is. We should seek to understand the real problem. The real problem, not the symptom. Two things people like this have in common. They have a very unbiblical soteriology. Almost all of them are Arminian. Almost all of them are Arminian. How people come to faith in Christ in their system is a very natural, rationalistic process. It's just a, a decision of the human will. But the real problem in back of all these symptoms is the second thing they have in common. They have a faulty view or a defective view of biblical authority. There is a crisis of biblical authority in the churches. They do not trust the power of the gospel to save the sinner. And as a result, they employ an almost endless number of strategies to talk, to, to talk people into joining the Christian club. In other words, these are nothing more than sales pitches when you raise the hood. And when one pitch doesn't work, they try another one. And when that doesn't work, they try another one. All right. And that brings us to, brings us to the end 
of this podcast. I hope I've I've hope that this makes sense. I hope I've said something that is encouraging, uplifting, enlightening. Um, yeah. So um, look, keep your chin up. Continue to stand for the truth. Continue to be courageous. It's going to get more and more challenging as we go forward. But we are the church, the army of the living God, and we have to stand and be the light that God has called us to be in a culture that is becoming darker and darker by the moment. God bless. This podcast is part of the Bible Thumping Wingnut Network, Biblical Christianity's marketplace of ideas. BibleThumpingWingnut.com A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate On earth is not his equal